0: evening, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Richard Spakala. I'm back again with yet another podcast. Um, Today, I'm going to talk about, well, DNA and our traditions. Specifically, what has prompted me is I sat down and thought and said, hang on a minute, this DNA thing is going out of control, if it isn't already. And then I looked around and said, but how did we do it in the past? And so I looked at it and it's very interesting. Many of you, many of us Africans, if we were to sit down with our great-great-grandparents, who lived in the 1700s, we would find that they would tell us a number of things, rather many things we know nothing about. For instance, our parents never got married in church because the white man's churches obviously had not yet been introduced. And likewise, our great-grandparents never made till death us do part, marriage vows. Because the white man hadn't brought them yet. Marriage in our ancestors' times represented a union of families more than it did the individuals being married. Yes, the bride and groom were important, of course. But the intricacies of marriage at the time were about one family joining another. Take Buganda, for instance, which I I understand better, I think, in in Uganda. There was a ceremony that was called a kuchala, or the visiting, which was a very private ceremony. And a number of people, maybe two or three, four at the most, would visit the bridegroom-to-be's family to say, you know what, we are interested in your daughter. Following that, there was the kwanjula, the introduction. That was very private, too, with not more than four to six guests from the groom-to-be's family. This whole business of 100 people and all that, these big ceremonies we see today, were not, would be a shock to our great-grandparents. They never did anything like that. Marriage was very sacred. It was conducted in private. The only really public ceremony was to welcome the bride. And that usually was a giant party by the receiving husband's village that lasted into the wee hours all for days depending on the level of wealth of the the marrying family even the kufumba which was um, the first form of banquet was really by invitation only it used to be big but by invitation only so permanence of the wedding union was assumed by the private family ceremonies not demanded by marriage vows made in front of multitudes of people. Because of what marriage represented, divorce happened under highly exceptional circumstances. And it was conducted as quietly as possible to minimize the mutual embarrassment of the families involved. Because remember, marriage was about families, not necessarily the individuals. So compromise was sought rather than heading for divorce as we do today. For instance, a virile man would be found to secretly impregnate the wife of an impotent or disinterested husband who would then raise the the children as his own without a word revealed about the circumstances of their conception. A select few elders would obviously know because it had to be arranged. But they would keep the secret to their deaths. And careless whispers about the truth would be quashed faster than you could say, keep quiet. Now, there were wives who couldn't give birth. They were not banished to live in misery or embarrassed unless they became shrewish about their barrenness, shrewish and vicious, and maybe even uh, bitter, verbally bitter. If they didn't, they remained what we called muchala mukulu, or the doyen of the household, while the husband made arrangements to have children er- elsewhere. And their status was never challenged by anyone, not even by the children of the supplementary wives. Even today, still. You don't have to be married at the district registrars or in a church or in a mosque to be lawfully married. Once you've had the Kwanjula ceremony in Buganda, and in, I think, in in western Uganda, you have Kwanjula and all sorts of other ceremonies like that across the country, you are legally married. So, you see, even on marriage, Africans did not need lessons from the colonialists or their holy books to know what to do. But for today, it is the consequences of the introduction of foreign marriage vows and public collective praising and marriage ceremonies that I want to dwell on. With a creeping growth of Western medicine and technology, families are increasingly resorting to DNA to establish paternity of children sometimes of children who are already family men and women themselves and i think nothing could be more dangerous to family cohesion trust all of which are critical to holding societies and relationships together because of the sensitivity of the matter and the likelihood of everyone knowing about these dna cases in a country as small as uganda one has to tread very carefully when citing case studies. Nonetheless, there is a, a fairly well-known case to me whereby grown children challenged the, the paternity of their last sibling, last-born sibling. The sibling was a teenager at the time their father died. Now, the older children, many of them adults in their 30s and 40s, were advised that there was nothing to be gained from seeking DNA proof of paternity, and it was to no avail. Relatives stepped in and tried to persuade them not to embarrass their mother in such a manner, but these grown children wouldn't budge. The youngest boy wasn't their father's child and should be disowned, they insisted. To cut the long story short, the DNA test was conducted on all the children. And it emerged lo behold that the last born of the family the one that the others were trying to disown was the only biological child of the dead man Hmm. there was egg on the faces of these kids and their mother was humiliated by her children's greed induced actions so now, ask yourself, if the bloody-mindedness of the older children was about property and money, which many people whisper it was, there were already adults who could look after themselves. So why did they want to prevent their youngest brother from having the same privileges they did? If it were about proving that the youngest boy was their father's child, the man was already dead. So what was to be gained from establishing that? In the days before DNA, a lot of men raised children they hadn't sired, often knowing who the real father was for the reasons I've already alluded to. The embarrassment to the entire family wasn't something anyone wanted. In In addition, it was generally accepted that whoever raised the child was the father, Not necessarily the one who had planted the seed. Today, you hear Western educated sociologists, psychologists, family specialists, name it. They tell you the same thing as though they invented it. But this idea was taken for granted in our forefathers' time more than 300 years ago. So our forefathers were wise people. The man who raises the child provides a roof for it wakes up in the middle of the night to take you to the hospital, and provides emotional, spiritual, and psychosocial support is the father. Our fathers didn't need to read any book to understand this common sense fact that we are now intent on abandoning on the silly claims of wanting to know the truth. Once you know the truth, which most men usually know all along, but haven't got the inked evidence, then what? Are you ready to preside over the emotional and spiritual destruction of your entire family? My thinking, therefore, is that once you feel emotionally vested in the child, do not ask for a DNA proof of paternity. And the reason for this is simple. You will potentially destroy yourself, the child, and the mother if you do. Yet what matters is emotional vestment in the child, the bond built with the child, and not who planted the seed. If the child is still in infancy, the man may not yet be emotionally vested, so one can understand if that man decides to try and establish paternity of a baby that is three, maybe six months old, or thereabouts. But even if you're not already emotionally vested in the child, it is an own goal, sincerely, to insist on a DNA test. Imagine that the DNA proves that the child is yours. What will you do to the state of trust between you and the mother of that child? Can you really repair it? Would you blame that woman for breaking up with you because of loss of trust? If the child whose paternity you're seeking is an adult who has always looked up to you as his or her father, what will a DNA result shattering that bond do to their spirit, their emotional and psychological well-being? What price are you willing to pay to destroy an individual, a person, a spirit you've raised? So let us not swallow everything the white man brings to us or has brought to us as though we cannot think for ourselves. Let us study how our forefathers dealt with many of such, ins- such sensitive issues and learn from them because they were v- often very wise. Never, Remember the saying, never trouble trouble before trouble troubles you. Live, and let live, even if you may suspect that a particular child is biologically not yours. If the child decides as an adult to seek their true paternity or maternity, that is a different issue, since such cases are usually not about renting families asunder or disowning anyone. Such cases are usually about filling a knowledge void. There is a gap that the child wants to fail, And once they do that, they're usually ready to move on. Finally, check out my podcast of December 21st, 2021. In that podcast, I argued that despite you being called the parent, parenting is not about you, the father, or indeed the mother. It is about the child. It is thus important to consider only actions that are in the best interest of the child even if they might not massage your ego it is very important not to inflict pain and suffering just to make yourself feel good over and out